Oh, are we doing good this morning? Are we awake? You know, it's the Sunday after uh, Christmas. This is kind of a time when we just like to snooze. So you have my permission for the next 30 minutes. Go ahead and take a nice little nap if you'd like. Right. Hey, my name's Trey. I'm so happy to be here. And as the video said, I am a friend of John, so please uh, do not hold that against me. Um, I'm here with my wife, Bailey, who is up here singing. And we are celebrating because tomorrow we have a five-week-old baby. So we are new parents. Uh, and we are, are tired and exhausted, uh, but we're in love with the little guy. His name is Griffith Alexander Fall, and uh, he is just a great big ball of joy, even if he does keep us up all night. We uh, currently live in Quincy. Originally, we are from Indiana, so I might talk uh, just a little bit of funny. And since I am from Indiana, I'll just be real with you guys right off the bat. I don't like Patriots. So... <laughs> I'm sorry, I grew up in the Peyton Manning era, and you guys always beat us, so that's why I don't really like the Patriots all that much, Uh, but hopefully, even though I probably just made a bunch of enemies, uh, hopefully we can still be friends because we have Jesus uh, in common, and that's that's better than than any uh, football team ever will be. And also, I am a friend of of John's. In fact, when I came out here uh, to interview for the job uh, in Quincy, I actually interviewed a little bit with John, and we came out here, and he showed us around the city, and we spent some time with people at the church that we were interviewing at. And, you know, we loved everybody. We loved the city. We loved Kristen and the boys. I mean, everybody was great. And then we spent some time with John, and it was like, well, this is almost a deal breaker. In fact, I've told John this before. I even told my wife as we were flying back home uh, to Indiana after the interview, I said, you know, I really liked everything about Quincy and I really liked everything about Restore. I'm just not sure that John and I are really going to get along. I really didn't think that John and I were going to be friends, but uh, we quickly uh, turned that corner, and he and I have become really good friends. And I just got to say, you guys have one of the best worship leaders uh, that I've ever heard. I absolutely love uh, when John leads worship. So I'm going to quit saying nice things before he starts crying. Uh, Have you ever heard of the performance duo Penn and Teller? Penn, Gillette, and Teller, they perform out in Las Vegas. They do some comedy. They do some magic tricks and illusions. They're they're an incredible show, incredible act that they have. And in 2010, I came across a video uh, that Penn Gillette had posted where he had had an encounter with a Christian. And, and if you know anything about Penn Gillette, you know that he is an outspoken atheist. He does not have any time for religion. He does not have any time for God or Jesus. He just is an outspoken atheist and he will tell you what he thinks. And so during this YouTube video, he's, he's talking about how he was uh, signing autographs and meeting people after the show. And he noticed a normal looking guy in a business coat and had a suit and tie. And he's like, there wasn't anything special about him. He just seemed like a regular guy. And then as he came up to me and started talking to me, I quickly realized that something was different about this guy. And as we were talking, he reached into his coat and he says, I know you don't know me, but I just wanted to give this to you because I thought you might enjoy it. And he handed Penn Jillette a Bible. Now you might think in our culture of outrage that when an outspoken atheist like Penn Jillette receives something like that, he would burst at the seams and he would blow up in this guy's face. What are you doing trying to shove the Bible and Jesus down my throat? But that was the exact opposite response that Penn had. In fact, Penn says in his video, he says, I've always said, That if you are a a believer in Jesus, if you believe in a heaven or hell, if you believe that eternity exists after death and you don't share that with everybody you know because it might be a little socially awkward or you might lose a couple friends, he says, how much do you actually have to hate that person to not share that news with them, to not share this love that you claim to have? 
So he was respectful to this guy. He says, I I knew that this guy cared about me. I could see in his eyes that he loved me because he wasn't willing to to let me go uh, to to hell without being warned first. He goes, I still don't believe in it. I still think it's a a load of, of crock, but, you know, I appreciate the respect and the love that that guy had for me. And I think that's an interesting question for us as Christians uh, living in the 21st century America. If we have this message of love, if we have this message of forgiveness and compassion, if we have this message of eternity uh, with God, how much do we have to hate somebody to not share that truth with them? See, as we go through uh, our text today, as we look at the book of Acts, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. As we uh, look at this story in Acts, uh, we are going to see how our main responsibility, our job as the church, is to share the love of Jesus with the world around us. In fact, if you remember nothing else I say today, here's the bottom line that I would like for you to remember, that the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. Now, you understand what I'm saying here. When I talk about the church, I'm not talking about this building that we come to on Sunday mornings. I'm not talking about the building that I go to on Sunday mornings in Quincy or the building that I grew up going to in Indiana. When I say the church, I'm talking about the people of God. I'm talking about you, and I'm talking about me. We are the church. It's not just some building. So you know what that means. That means that you and I are God's plan A. This building in Mansfield, Massachusetts is not God's plan A, but you and I, the people of God, are his plan A. And so we need to live in that truth. We need to live realizing that we are his plan A and that it is our job, it is our privilege to share this resurrection, to share this love with the world. But in our lives, it's easy to forget that reality. It's easy to forget that we are his plan A, and instead we want his plan A to become our plan B. This is no uh, strange thing that has happened. The disciples struggled with this when they were with Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Let me give you just a little bit of context here. Jesus has already uh, uh, risen from the dead. He spent about 40 days with his disciples. He's appeared to them three or four different times. He he showed up to a couple of disciples on the road to a town called Emmaus. He sat around the fire with them and enjoyed some fish. And he even showed up to them in the upper room. And this is the last time that they would see Jesus. Jesus. And they know that he's getting ready to leave. They can sense that something's about to change. And, And so they ask him this question, Jesus... Will you, at this time, restore the kingdom of heaven? See, they were good Jews. They were, they were raised in probably Jewish families, and they had gone through the Jewish education. And so they knew that their prophecies spoke of this Messiah, this Savior, this revolutionary leader who would come and overthrow the powers that be and restore Israel back to the power it once was under King David. This is what they were hoping for. And so when Jesus steps on the scene and begins to proclaim, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior, follow me, and they begin to follow him, they still have in their minds that one day Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and he will restore Israel back to its former glory. This was their hopes and dreams. This is what they were longing for. And what happened to them was they got caught up in the false reality of their hopes and dreams. And that happens to us too. We get caught up in the false reality of our hopes and dreams. 
See, when they saw the words and the actions and the teachings of Jesus, they never changed their ultimate goal. Yeah, they may have been changed. They may have been convicted by the things that he was teaching, but they never changed their ultimate goal to be about his ultimate goal. And we may say, well, how could they have done that? They spent all that time with Jesus. They heard all of his teachings and and they'd seen all the miracles they'd done. How could they still be so self-centered? How could they be so focused on themselves? But if we're honest, we do the same things in our lives every single day. Christianity, especially in our culture, has become more about us than it has been about God. It becomes about our preferences and our desires, our likes and our dislikes. There's actually a name for this that it's called consumer Christianity. People, they, they church shop, they go around, they say, well, that church had good coffee, so that gets a check. Well, that worship wasn't all that great, so we're going to just give them like a minus sign for that. And you compile all these things and you say, okay, that's the church for me. And rather than digging in and going deep in the place where you live with the people that you do life with, we want to make Christianity all about us. If the coffee's good and the worship is great and there's an engaging message, well, then I can go to that church and I can be a Christian. Somehow, over the last 2,000 years since Jesus was on this earth, we have found a way to mix our American dream and our Christianity together to where you can't even tell the difference. And that's a problem, I think. The mission of God, the mission of the church to be God's plan A has taken a backseat. It has been, become secondary in our lives. We no longer ask, how can I better love my neighbor? But we ask, how can I have the biggest house in my neighborhood? We no longer ask, how many people can I introduce to Jesus? But how many people can I be introduced to so that I can climb that corporate ladder and finally make the job? It's no longer about sacrificing everything, but gaining everything for ourselves and then giving away just a little bit that we have left over. Christianity has become me-focused And it's become comfortable. We don't want to be uncomfortable in our faith. I'll follow God if it fits my schedule. I'll follow God if it means that I can remain private. I'm not going to talk about my faith in public. Do you know what kind of social suicide I would be committing? If those people ever found out I was a Christian, it would be the end of me. Christianity has become comfortable. There's a minister and uh, writer that I've really fallen in love with over the last year. Uh, his name's Brett McCracken, which I think is one of the coolest names ever, Unleash the McCracken. And he uh, wrote an article about eight ways that you know your faith, your Christianity uh, has become too comfortable. Number one, I think they're going to be on the screens. Number one, there's absolutely no friction between your Christianity and your partisan politics. Just to let you know, Jesus wasn't Democrat or Republican, okay? He was above both of those things. And if our Christianity aligns perfectly with the way we believe politically, there's probably a little bit of too much comfort there. Number two, there are no paradoxes or tensions or unresolved questions. Sometimes we like to put God in this box and think we have everything figured out. But when we're trying to comprehend the almighty creator of the universe, there's probably going to be a few things that we have to grapple with. Number three, your friends and coworkers are surprised to learn you're a church-going Christian. You're a Christian. I would have never guessed that. Number four, you know Christianity has become too comfortable if you never even think about or remember the Sunday sermon on Monday. If that's you tomorrow, don't tell me, okay? Number five, no one at your church ever annoys you. This is a good one. 
Church is supposed to be family. I get annoyed with some of my family members. This is easy for you because you all go to church with John. Number six, you know Christianity has become too comfortable when you never feel challenged, only affirmed. When I went through this list with our church and Quincy, I actually apologized to them for ever being too easy on them, for not pushing them to do more, to be more like Jesus. Number seven, uh, you know Christianity has become too comfortable if you've never had to have a truth and love conversation with a fellow Christ follower. Those are hard. And number eight, no one in your church could comment on any area of growth they've seen in you in the past. Christianity has become too comfortable for us. It has mixed with our culture, and we have no longer put the mission of God as our plan A, but it has become our plan B instead. And sadly, being the church has become a thing of the past, and we treat God like this genie in a bottle where we rub it and we ask for three wishes. We get upset when life is hard. I'm a Christian. Life is never supposed to be hard, right? Can I let you in on a little secret? Just just keep it between us. You probably won't hear it in a lot of churches uh, in our culture, but nowhere in this book, nowhere from the mouth of Jesus does it ever say, That if you're a Christian, everything's going to be rainbows and butterflies from here on out. No, in fact, in the Bible, it says that we shall pick up our cross and follow him. I love what the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. uh, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Our Christianity has become uh, transactional. If I give this to God, what's he going to give to me? Our Christianity has become about living our best life now just so that we can make it in life. And we'll come up with a a gamut of excuses to be comfortable with our own hopes and dreams. Well, little Jimmy had a soccer game that I had to go to, so I couldn't go serve with the church. Or I was busy at work, and so I wasn't able to make it this morning. Or that new iPhone just came out, so I'm not going to be able to give my normal tithe that I normally would to help propel the mission of God forward. Are you kidding me? I love Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Though uh, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but he lowered himself to the form of a human, to, the, to a slave, to a servant. Jesus gave up heaven for you and for me, and we can't give up four hours a month to come to church and gather with believers and be encouraged by the word and to sing before God. Look, I'm almost off my soapbox, okay? I promise it's not going to be like this, uh, the whole message. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with careers or sports or hobbies. By all means, please make as much money as you can and then use that money to push the mission of God forward. What I'm calling you to do is to reframe your thinking. Reframe every conversation you have, every decision you make around the mission of God and say, how can I be God's plan A in this world? See, just like the disciples, we're going to have our own hopes and dreams. They thought Jesus was going to be this revolutionary leader, but instead he came ruling with compassion and love and forgiveness like they had never seen. In fact, Jesus responds to them in the next verse, verse 7. He says, he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's Jesus doing here? He's correcting their thinking. He's saying, hey, 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 don't try to be God. Don't try and get this all figured out. When he comes back, that's only for him 
to know. When the kingdom is fully restored, that's for him to know. What you need to know is currently, I am sending you out to be my witnesses. I am sending you out to be a witness to what you have seen happen in my life. The fact that I rose from the grave. And I am sending you out in the power of my Holy Spirit. He's talking about the third part of the Trinity there. I love thinking about the Trinity. The way I think about it is you have God. You've got God in the bod, that's Jesus. And you've got God in your bod, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you, to send you out to be a witness to the resurrection power that you have experienced in your life. Don't worry about the timing, Jesus says. Just tell people what I've done. That's the church in its simplest form, right? I mean, isn't this a genius plan? Rather than making one central organization that tries to like, control everything from one place, Jesus says, nope. If you believe in the resurrection, I'm sending you out as my witnesses, and we're going to watch as the world experiences heaven. I'm just going to unleash heaven on the world, and I'm going to send out anybody who believes in me to share this news. You know what he's doing? He's calling for us to pick up the present reality of our purpose and calling. Lay down the false reality of our hopes and dreams and pick up the present reality of our purpose and calling. You've got to get rid of that me mentality and say, no, it's all about he. It's all about him. Jesus says, this is about my love for the world. My love on the cross, given my life given for you. That's what this is about. And you must be telling everyone. And can we get this out of the way real quick? You don't have to be a minister to do this. You don't have to have gone through four years of Bible college and seminary and have a PhD in theology and all these different things that the world might say you have to do. You can't. You can't do that. That's that's not what it's about. John and Shan and myself and any other minister can't meet everybody. You guys have the biggest impact and the biggest influence where you work, where you live, and the people you do life with. You simply must believe that Jesus rose from the grave and then you can share this news. You can be God's plan A with the world. Uh, There's a church historian by the name of Justo Gonzalez, and he has done a lot of research on the early church in its its infancy when it first started. And I love what he says uh, about the, the growth of the early church that took place. He says, although it is impossible to give exact statistics, the enormous numerical growth of the church in its first centuries is inevitable. Nobody disputes that. The church grew like wildfire. He says, in the early church, worship services like this centered on communion and only baptized Christians were admitted to its celebrations. It'd look a lot different than church does today. He says, therefore, evangelism did not take place in church services, but rather in kitchens, shops, and markets. Sure, there were some who held more academic-type debates in education centers, but the fact remains that most converts were made by anonymous Christians, people whose names we will never know, whose witness led others to their faith. Again, Gonzalez says it is clear that the enormous spread of the gospel in those first centuries was not due to full-time missionaries or ministers, but rather to the many Christians who traveled for other reasons. Slaves, merchants, exiles condemned to work in the mines and the like. You know what that tells me? No matter what job you have, no matter where you find yourself in life, you can be a minister of the gospel. You can be God's plan A and share this love with everyone. What I'm asking you to do is see every conversation you have, every relationship you have as an opportunity to share the gospel, as an opportunity to begin a conversation that one day might lead to another conversation about Jesus. 
What I'm not advocating for you is to go out on the street corners at the Patriots game today and say, Turn or burn! Do you know where you're going if you die tonight? That's not what I'm asking for. That will run people away quicker than anything else. I'm advocating for the courage and the awareness to use every conversation, to use every opportunity to share the gospel because that's our present purpose and calling. We aren't called to money or the nice career or the fancy house or the fast car. We are called simply to show others how much Jesus loves them that he was willing to die on their behalf. Look, we have an irresistible message We have a message that says, yeah, you know, every wrong thing that you did, it's been forgiven on the cross. We have a message that says you can spend eternity. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear evil. You don't have to fear any more pain because when Jesus comes back, eternity waits with him. That's our message. We got to pick up our present reality of our purpose and calling. Look how this story ends. Let's go to verse 9 of Acts chapter 1. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Can we just sit with this uh, story for a second? Can we just imagine it? I mean, put yourselves in their shoes. They, they love Jesus. They followed Jesus for three years. They grieved when he died, and they rejoiced when he had risen. They were so excited. They had their best friend back, and now they're sitting there. They're talking to him. They're having this conversation, and then all of a sudden, he begins to levitate off the ground, and he begins to rise up into the air, and you're like, oh my goodness, what is going on? Get out my Instagram. I gotta, I gotta take, this, take this picture so the world can see it, right? And then all of a sudden, he's covered in clouds, and they can no longer see him, and then at the snap of a finger, these two white-robed men appear beside them, and they're like, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, I'm looking at the guy that just rose into the air. Of course, what do you think I'm doing? He says, why are you standing there? This Jesus, who you have seen go into heaven, will come back again someday in the same way you saw him leave. Isn't that an incredible scene? This is something that they won't soon forget. He says, why are you standing there? You must go and tell others what you have seen. You know what the angels are calling us to? The angels are calling us to the future reality of Christ's return. The future reality of Christ's return. So we lay down that false reality of our hopes and dreams. We pick up the present reality of our purpose and calling. And we're motivated by and we look forward to that future reality of Christ's return. Now understand, this is a hotly contested subject. Depending on who you talk to, you will get different answers on when, how, and how many times Jesus is going to come back. But at the end of the day, Jesus will come to fully restore creation. He will come to fully uh, reverse the curse, as my professors used to say. His love and his compassion and his forgiveness will be fully realized. And so what we need to be doing is pointing people to that future reality. We give glimpses of that future reality and the way we live, the way we love, and the way we interact with others. The angels here, it's incredible what they've done. The angels here have created a sense of urgency. It says Jesus is returning. You'll see him come back, but we don't know when. We don't know when it's coming. So if eternity hangs in the balance, we better get to work. We better keep sharing that news with people. Some ministers call that apocalyptic urgency. Urgency about the end of the world when Jesus comes back. Except we're, not, we're, we're worried about people not spending eternity with him. Our purpose is to share that good news. 
about the future reality when Christ returns, when all pain and evil is done away with, and we must be sharing it. I, I don't know many of you. I met a couple of you on my way in, but I'm sure that there are people in this room who have experienced intense loss. You've lost loved ones. You've lost a job. You've You've had to fight an incredible sickness maybe your whole life or, or you've been battling addiction or depression. I, I don't know what darkness or, or sin or pain or evil might exist in your life. But I do know that there are stories in this room of people who have overcome that, who have overcome depression, who have overcome addiction, who have overcome the pain of losing a loved one and look forward to the day when they meet with Jesus again. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that the world needs to hear your story. Your testimony, your story is one of the best ways to share the gospel with other people and with your friends and family. The world must know that you can stare death in the face and say, I will not fear for my king has overcome the grave and I know I will be reunited with my loved ones again someday. No matter what happens in life, I know that you have the peace and the joy because you believe in an eternal relationship, an eternal kingdom with the almighty creator, God of the universe. And that's what you cling to. That's what you long for, and the world must know it. But listen here, you don't have eternity to share that story. Clock's ticking. We got to get to work. We have to become God's plan A in this world. Jesus is going to return, and I pray you drag as many people to heaven with you as possible. A couple weeks ago, uh, my favorite music artist uh, released a new album. His name's Eric Church. I don't expect many of you to know him because he's a country music artist, and I usually get made fun of uh, for liking country music. But I absolutely love (coughs) Eric Church. Whenever he announces a concert, I start saving because I'm not going to miss one of his shows. He's an incredible songwriter and performer. I've been to three of his concerts. And so when he released this new album, I was like, okay, he's going to be announcing a tour soon. And he announced that he was doing another tour. So I was all excited. I was like, oh, I'm in Boston. People don't really like country music up here. He's not going to come. Turns out he's going to be there Friday and Saturday night at TD Garden for two nights in a row, three hours, no opener, just him uh, for two nights, two different shows. I was ecstatic. So I registered. I was pre-registered for the pre-sale, like all kinds of pre's, because they were expecting the concert to sell out like that. So I was crossing my fingers. I got accepted into the pre-registry, and I was like, all right, I'm getting these tickets. They went on sale on a Friday at 10 a.m. I was up at 7.30 making sure my internet worked and my computer was working. And I mean, I was ready to buy these tickets, and they went on sale, and I got them. I got two tickets on Friday and two tickets on Saturday. So February 1st and 2nd, I'm going to be a redneck, and I'm going to be cheering along with Eric. Church. And you know what I did after I got those tickets? I pulled out my phone and I texted my buddy who likes Eric Church. And I was like, dude, Boston, two nights, me and Eric Church. And he was, of course, excited. And then I, I was texting other people who didn't even like country music and didn't even like Eric Church. I was like, guys, I just got Eric Church tickets. I was telling my wife, honey, we're going to Eric Church two nights in a row. And she's like, I don't care. And I was so excited. And I was telling everybody, I think I even talked to John later that afternoon. I was like, John, I just got Eric Church tickets. I'm going to be at the concert. And he was like, cool, dude, happy for you. And then later that night, I was overcome with guilt because I realized that I get more excited about spending six hours with a guy who sings about uh, losing his girlfriend and his dog than I do about telling people about an eternal love, an eternal relationship with Jesus. And what if we treated eternity with that same sense of urgency? 
What if we treated eternity with that concert we've been longing to go to or that vacation we've been planning or that house we've always dreamed about? What if that was the way we treated eternity? Isn't it crazy what we do? We have this message of love that Jesus came and he died for us. And yet we often remain silent. But we can't anymore. Because eternity hangs in the balance and we don't have eternity to share that message. We are God's plan A and there is no plan B. We must, church, start talking. We must start sharing those stories. So what do we do? Here's what I would say. Take the angel's advice again. What do they say to the disciples? Why are you standing there? Here's the advice. Don't just stand there. Don't just stand there. Wherever you're at, whatever job you have, whatever your family situation looks like, whatever your friend's uh, situation is, don't just stand there. Surrender that false reality of your hopes and dreams. Pick up the reality of your present purpose and calling and be motivated by Christ's future return, that future reality when he comes back. That's what we got to do. We got to get to work. We got to put our boots on the ground and start telling people about the love of Jesus. The year was 1994. Bill Clinton was president. Uh, the Lion King was released. It was also the year that Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan had their whole thing. Uh, the Buffalo Bills beat Dallas in the Super Bowl. Uh, O.J. Simpson decided to make a run from the cops in 1994. Justin Bieber, Dakota Fanning, and Harry Styles were all born. I was born that year as well. Now I've just told you all how young I am. Kurt Cobain and Richard Nixon died that year in 1994. You know what else happened in 1994? There were two gospel-centered churches, two Jesus-focused churches in Mansfield, Massachusetts, who said, hey, I think we'd be better if we linked up together. And ever since then, Edgewood Church of Christ, since the end of 1994 and the beginning of 1995, has said, we will be God's plan A. We will be boots on the ground telling people about the love of Jesus. We will be a force to be reckoned with as we share the love of Jesus, as we share the message that Jesus has risen from the grave. So can I encourage you today, church, to continue that legacy To say, yes, I will continue pushing forward and I will continue to share the message of the resurrection with my friends and I will be a part of this incredible mission around the world, but specifically here locally in Mansfield, Massachusetts. Don't just stand there. Be motivated by the future reality of Christ's return and pick up your present purpose and calling. Continue that legacy. You know, there's uh, one one other thing that we do uh, during uh, church services, and we like to celebrate communion. Because at its core, communion is simply uh, thanking Jesus and reflecting upon that death, that burial, and that resurrection that that Jesus did for us, that love that he had for us. And uh, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that says, uh, Paul's talking about the communion meal. He's kind of giving instructions on how to observe it. And he says at the end of his little message on communion, he says, for every time you partake of this meal, you are proclaiming the Lord's resurrection until he returns. Isn't that awesome? That every time we meet here on a Sunday morning, And every time we remember the Lord's Supper, and every time we give thanks to God for the resurrection by partaking of the bread and the juice that represents his body and his blood spilled for us, we are taking part in that future reality of his return. We are picking up our present purpose and calling and saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died, but I also believe that he rose. 
So as we go into this time of communion, I would encourage you to reflect on that. Reflect on his love for you and reflect on ways that you can also share that love with the world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much that they are committed, they are willing, and they are passionate about sharing your love with the world. God, I pray that they would see the importance of their work, the importance of every relationship they have, every opportunity you've given them to be a beacon of light, to share the truth of the resurrection with the world. Uh, God, when I think about the fact that you have allowed us, allowed me to be part of your plan A, I'm baffled, but I'm thankful. Because you came to save me, and I know the resurrection power in my own life. I've felt your love and your compassion and your forgiveness. So God, I pray that your spirit would, would not only come into me, but would come into everyone as we try and share that same love with the world. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for raising. And thank you for a promised eternity with you in heaven forever. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.